Good deal. Glad to see everybody. I got a, hopefully I got a good word for you guys today. Um, you know, I'll just put a disclaimer out there. If we're here till about 1.30, I'll take the blame. But I want to make sure I get uh, through all of this. So let us pray. Father God, we just thank you that you're here with us today, Lord. And Lord, my sincere prayer is today that, Father, through a word that is said or maybe even through a moment of silence, uh, a handshake, a hug, that something here, Father, would just bring people closer onto you. It is in the precious name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. My focus scripture today, the title of my sermon, is a biblical response on race. Um, other than my wife here, I think I'm the only other, but that's all good. Um, my scripture, my focus scripture is going to be uh, John chapter 4, uh, verses 1 through 25. Before I hit the scripture, though, I kind of want to, you know, uh, touch on a few things. Uh, due to the coronavirus, this year was an Olympic year, so every four years we have the Olympics. And we missed the Olympics this year, but the Olympics, what it does, it, every four years we have the best athletes in the world that are going to come together and compete against each other for superiority in their specific event. Now, when the event is over, the winner does not get to select their favorite song to play. Okay, while the athletes use their own efforts and their skills, and they are recognized by the playing of the national anthem of the country that they represent uh, when they're on the winning stand. So it's understood that the Olympics is bigger than the athlete itself. It includes them, it utilizes them, but it's just not about them. They're part of a bigger country, a kingdom, if you will, and they represent that country or that kingdom. They are carrying the flag of that country or kingdom, and so it is clear to everybody that when they win, they did it under the banner of their country or under the banner of their flag and the kingdom that they represent. Likewise, for everyone in here that's proclaiming to be a Christian, we have a flag that we represent. While the kingdom of the flag that we represent is made up of a bunch of citizens, it was never God's intention that the individual uniquenesses of all the citizens of his kingdom would cause them to lose sight of the flag that they're representing. And that flag is the flag of the cross or the flag of our commitment to Jesus Christ. So unless you're Rip Van Winkle and been asleep for the last five months, three weeks, four weeks, you kind of know the state of our country right now. You know, there's a bunch of racial divide. There's a whole bunch of stuff going on. And while I'm sure that you have some thoughts and opinions on the subject, as, as do I, um, regardless of what those thoughts or opinions are and, you know, how you feel about whatever's going on, I hope that we all can agree that God's way is the right way. Amen, Amen to that. So my message today is going to attempt to show us all a biblical response to race or racism, and hopefully we all can take an introspective look at our own selves and our own lives, a self-evaluation, if you will, that's going to, you know, maybe highlight our own biases, our own prejudices, and succumb to the word and the will of God. That's what we're here to do today. So what, what I'm going to try to attempt to do is to unmuddy the waters created by the many voices that are out there today 
um, be it media or whoever, and, you know, that are spewing, you know, different things. And yes, we have a lot of voices out there, and the loudest ones today are about which lives matter. So I'll get to the scripture here in a minute. I'll say this, all lives matter because all life was created in the image of God. Therefore, all lives matter. However, underneath the banner that God has created, where all people were created in his image, there are equities that must be addressed. For example, the life of the unborn matters. I think we can agree on that. Hence, the emphasis over the years on the injustice in the womb. That injustice to the unborn must be under the umbrella that that is life, and because all lives matter, that life matters. Black lives matter as a subset of all lives mattering. So any injustice to any particular group must be addressed specific to that group, but under the banner that all life is created in the image of God, so all life matters. And so on and so forth. An important point here, once you extract your specific scenario and remove it from under the umbrella of God's creation, you create your own independent cause. Sociology, if we're Christians, there is no discussion of sociology without theology. In other words, once your cause is removed under the umbrella that God has created, now you're getting away from theology, and that's not what God wants. What theology is, is God's view about it. So let's read some scripture. John 4. I'm going to read through chapter, through verse 9, and then I'm going to take a pause and try to unpack that, and we'll see how it goes. If I get through the whole chapter, we certainly will be here till 1.30. Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gay that he was gaining popularity and baptizing more disciples than John. Although, in fact, it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon, or the sixth hour, as some translations would say. When the Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. I'm going to stop right there and try to unpack this a little bit. A little uh, geographical lesson here. So Judea is a town in the south. In the north, we have Galilee. Somewhere in the middle is Samaria. So to get now, the Orthodox Jews didn't necessarily want to go through Samaria, 
for a number of reasons. A historical lesson here, uh, many years before Christ came, uh, the Assyria invaded Israel as part of God's judgment against the, uh, the Israelites or the Jews. And as a result, some Jews got transplanted to Assyria and some Assyrians got transplanted to Israel. And the result of that was Jews mis- mixing with Assyrians were offsprings of the interracial marriages and they were called the Samaritans. And Jews did not like Samaritans. In fact, they called them the Samaritan dogs. That's the, I think in today's world, we say that's the, that's the D word. We'll just call it the D word, dogs. <laughs> if you see where I'm going with this. So they were called Samaritan dogs. So Jesus had to go through Samaria. He didn't have to, but he chose to. And this was the divine appointment of God. So verse 5 said, he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. Now, Jacob's well here was not just something that was just thrown into the text just because. Okay, it's very significant, and let me tell you why. Because this was a place that Jesus could meet the Samaritan woman, and it was common ground. Okay, and let me tell you why it was common ground. Because we know that Jacob is the father of the Jews. We know Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. What you may not know is that the Samaritans believe the first five books of the Bible. And because of Jacob being in Genesis, which is one of the first five books of the Bible, the Samaritans believed, you know, Genesis. And so they believed Jacob. They honored Jacob. So he was the father of both Jews and Samaritans. So the, the text here, I think, is very important because Jacob, uh, Jesus met the Samaritan woman on common ground. Verse 7 says, when when the Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? And his disciples had gone to buy food. And the Samaritan woman said, you are a Jew and I'm I'm a Samaritan. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. All right, I'm going to digress from the text here a little bit. I got a couple of points I want to make. Two important points and one question. So the first part, the first point is Jesus being a Jew is part of the quote-unquote ruling class or superior class. And he approached the Samaritan woman, the, the dreaded D word, those D people, right? He approached her and she was a part of the lesser class and asked for a drink of water. Can anybody identify with that? Second point. When he asked her for the drink of water, the Samaritan woman had a total distrust of Jesus. I mean, see what she said. You're a Jew. I'm a Samaritan. How can you ask me, you know, to, uh, you know, for for, uh, a drink of water? So she questioned Jesus's authenticity. So basically, she's saying, you guys despise us. You know, why are you asking me for a drink? She doesn't trust him because he's a Jew. And the history of their relations, of the racial relations between Jews and Samaritans is very ugly, very ugly. I hope you guys are following me here, okay? And so she does not trust Jesus. So here's a question, though. How did the woman know that Jesus was a Jew? I mean, I don't know. I mean, he he didn't walk to her and say, hi, I'm Jesus, I'm a Jew. 
you know. He never said he was a Jew, but she just said he was a Jew. So evidently, just by looking at him, she determined that he was a Jew, maybe by his dress, maybe by his accent, who knows. Uh, but he obviously was a Jew. Did she racially profile Jesus? That may have been the first case of racial profiling. Who knows? But here's the point. Jesus didn't stop being who he was to reach somebody else. He didn't give up his own creation to talk to somebody of a different creation. He was able to maintain his racial identity, his cultural identity, and he didn't let it get in the way of him doing what the Father called him to do, which was to reach across the railroad tracks, reach across the aisle, and bring somebody in. What's important here is that the rest of his culture, all the other Jewish people, nobody else did that. That was kind of taboo. This is not what we do. We don't mix with Samaritans because the Jews had no dealings with the Samaritans. So while God is not calling any of us to give up, to give up how he made us, he is not expecting us to use how he made us to relate inappropriately to others that he made different from us. Amen? Amen. And I'm going to try to explain this uh, as, as good as Dr. Tony Evans said, because this, this, this was just so profound to me. So I hope I don't mess it up. But technically, for all of us in here, there's, there's no, it's incorrect to call yourself a black Christian, me, or you a white Christian or a Hispanic Christian. Because when we do that, we make our color or culture the adjective. And it's the job of the adjective to modify the noun. So if you put Christianity in the noun position and your color or your culture in the adjective position or adjectival position, you have to keep shaping the noun so it looks like the adjective that's describing it. So if your color or culture stays in that, in the adjectival position, you got to keep shaking, shaping Christianity to look black or to look white or to look red or to look yellow. But Christianity is, is, is none of that. Okay? But your Christianity must always be in the adjectival position and your color or culture in the noun position. So if anything is adjusted, it's going to be the noun of our humanity and not the adjective of our faith. You and I are to define our humanity in terms of our faith and not our faith in terms of our humanity. Because Christianity in our lives comes first. Jesus stayed who he was, but he operated from heaven's point of view. He didn't give up being a Jew to reach her. God's not asking you to give up being who you are to touch somebody else, but don't let the fact that all those other folks in your race that won't drink from a cup keep you from drinking from a cup. That's right. Don't be so committed to your own race that you operate outside of the Christian faith while staying true to what God has called you to be and who God has made you. Jesus said, can I have a drink of water? 
And the woman is shocked by this. She's mesmerized and, and because of his request, because she cannot kind of internalize, like, what, what's going on here? This guy, you know, he's part of those people. They don't associate with us. That's them. We don't mix. What is he doing here? But Jesus did what everybody else in his race wouldn't do. And that had been going on for hundreds of years, hundreds of years. So as we move on, notice up to this point in the story, Jesus hasn't given her any Bible yet, no theology yet. All he said is, can I get a drink of water? All she knows at this point is that Jesus is unlike anybody else in his culture, that he's different, and probably this guy's a nice guy, you know, to approach me and ask me for some water. Now, here's the problem. A lot of us want to tell people about Jesus, but we aren't willing to drink from the cup. You know, I want to get your soul to heaven, but I just don't want to sit down with you and have a meal. You know, I'll witness to you, but I don't want to eat with you. Or I'll witness to you, but I don't want to drink with you. I don't want to fellowship with you. But Jesus has shown us a different way. Jesus has, said, has shown us the way that we can engage someone and ask to drink from their cup. Even though they're from a different race, a different culture, they have a different background, they've been raised differently, a different upbringing, okay? But I can still do that even though, you know, all those things are different between us. You can still do that. You see, a lot of people have rejected God because how can they believe in a God, you know, who's not social enough to eat or to drink with you or to engage you or to fellowship with you because you're Samaritan or because you're black or because you're white or because you're of a different culture? So the woman is just shocked that Jesus wants to put his Jewish lips on her Samaritan cup. He's going to do what his race wouldn't do. Because it was the right thing to do. It was the right thing to do. I'll move on in the text, starting in verse 10. I'll reread verse 9, where the Samaritan woman said, You are a Jew, I'm a Samaritan. How can you ask me for a drink? For the Jews do not associate with the Samaritans. In verse 10, Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who, is it, who it is that asked for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, and did also his, as did also his son and his livestock? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst again. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. Jesus told her, Go call your husband and come back. She, she said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You got that right. <laughs> so you're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, can I get, I, I can see that you're a prophet. Our ancestors, or some translations say our fathers, worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews, some translations say you people, 
That's a racial slur if we've heard one before, right? You people claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Let me unpack some of that. So you can see after Jesus asked to drink from her cup, he kind of took a different turn there. You know, he asked the woman, where's your husband? He, he knew all of this already, obviously. The woman told the truth. And Jesus starts to transition from sociology, if you will, to theology. Okay? But he would have never been able to make that transition from sociology to theology if he wasn't willing to drink from the cup. That's what laid the groundwork for the theology. So Jesus confronts the woman with her sin. Yeah, you've been kind of loose, had a bunch of, bunch of husbands. Now you're with a man that's not even your husband. And the woman says, wow, this guy, how does he know all of that? You must be a prophet. In verse 20, very key, she says, our ancestors worshiped on this mountain. And if you know your history, where they were at Jacob's well, the mountain behind them was Mount Gerizim. And that's where the Samaritans worshipped. And she said, our ancestors, our fathers worshipped on this, on this mountain, but you Jews, you know, worship in Jerusalem. You worship over there. We worship over here. What she's saying is that, Jesus, we're different. You were brought up one way. You were kind of, you know, groomed and raised, and your father and your ancestors told you this is a way to worship. But for me, we worship at Mount Gerizim, and my father and my mother and their grandfather, and who knows how many generations, you know, before that, say this is how we worship. This is what we do. This is the way we do it. This is right. This is wrong. And that's what she knows. We were brought up differently. And what Jesus says he just put it out there. He said, look, you, you Samaritans worship what you do not know. Jesus is about to give her some truth. He confronts her with the truth. You know what? I know your great-grandmother, your grandmother, your father, your mother, and everybody else raised you this way and told you this is the way it is, and this is where you worship, and this is how you worship, and this is the God you serve. But guess what? They were wrong. They were wrong. Jesus is saying, I don't care how you were raised. I don't care what you've learned. I don't care all those things that have clouded your mind to make you think that everything you're doing is right and you're justified in all your thinking and all your ideology and all of this stuff and you're justifying it based on how you were raised and you know mom and dad and grandma and all of that. Well, guess what? It's wrong. He says, for salvation is from the Jews. What he's saying there is don't put tradition over truth. Don't put what you've learned over what you know is right or what you learn is right. So what is truth? I'll define truth as an objective standard by which reality is measured. Or put differently and quite bluntly, it is God's point of view on anything. That is truth. So let me just say this. When you're in a situation and you're talking about any subject, whether it's race or, or whatever, you have to start with truth. Now, as soon as you bring spirituality in it, because that's where truth, remember, is God's way of viewing things, 
people are going to back up. Oh, I'm not talking about spirituality. Well, that's the only way I know how to talk about anything. I'm not going to be, you know, oh, we're talking about a, a racial, you know, division. So we talk about your experience or my experience. Because you know what? My experience is going to be different than yours. But how can we objectively, you know, categorize what we're talking about to say what is right, what is wrong, and what is truth? It's God's way of looking at it. Oh, politics, I want to be one way politically, but I'm a different person spiritually. No. We are who we are, and we have to carry the flag of Jesus Christ in everything we do and how we act and how we talk and how we discuss things and how we relate to other people. It's all about Jesus. Christianity comes first. That's the flag that we're carrying. That's what we're walking with. We're not walking on our racial identity on how we were raised. You know what school we went to? All those things may differ. And it's fine. It's good that they do differ. But we're standing and we're carrying the flag of Christ. So just because you were raised a certain way, once how you were raised disagrees with what God says, how you were raised was wrong. Because what God says is our truth. The problem is people are reaching back into their history to legitimize their decisions today when their decisions today go against the kingdom of God and God himself, and, and when their decisions today go against the kingdom of God and God himself, because tradition, they are putting tradition and loyalty and their upbringing, they're putting that over the flag of Christ that they should be carrying. And so they dig in and say, no, traditionally, this is how I've done it. This is what mommy said. This is what daddy said. This is what grandma said. And I hope to God that all of us in here that call ourselves children of God are saying, yeah, my mommy said this and my daddy said this, but you know what? Jesus Christ said this and Jesus Christ did this. And so that's what I'm going with. That's the truth that I'm going to march in. So another illustration of all of this, Jesus and the Samaritan woman, and I'll get back to that text, hopefully, if I have time, is in Galatians chapter 2. You guys might recall that in Acts 10, uh, Peter had a vision, and God brought a, a sheet down with all these live animals on the sheet and said, Peter, you're hungry, you know, eat. And Peter said, oh, no, I can't eat. You know, I'm Jewish. I don't eat pork. All of this stuff, you know, he's got his traditions. I don't eat anything that's unclean. God said, eat that. What I call clean is clean. You can eat whatever. The whole story, the way it kind of, you know, uh, uh, develops is that Cornelius had had, he was a Gentile, had had a, a, a dream. And Cornelius had sent some of his folks to go get Peter. God had told him, you go get Peter. Peter's got something to tell you. So Cornelius' folks go and they find Peter and they say, oh, Peter, you know, you got to come. Peter's a Jew. Cornelius is a Gentile who's a man of God. And Peter goes and he kind of goes to Cornelius. And they have a good time. And Peter makes an interesting uh, statement here in Acts chapter 10. Peter said, you are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with a Gentile or visit him. But God has shown me that I should not call any man impure or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without raising any objection. May I ask why you sent for me? 
So Peter knows, right? He just said, yeah, you know, it's kind of against tradition. I'm not supposed to deal with you. You're a Gentile. I'm a Jew. But Peter knows. He sees the light. You know, God tells me I'm not supposed to call anybody unclean. All men are good. As a little backdrop, if you recall, Peter sent Paul and Barnabas to minister to the Gentiles, while him and his other buddies kind of took care of the circumcision group. We'll minister to the circumcision group. Paul and Barnabas, you go out there, win souls for Christ, you know, all the people that aren't part of the circumcision group. But Peter knows better. So he, he knows these things. Later on, in verse 34 in Acts chapter 10, it says, then Peter began to speak. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts men from every nation who fear him and who do what is right. Because Cornelius has said all these things that he does, how God has ministered to him and all of that. So Peter sees the light. There's no question about it. Peter knows better. It's not about his, you know, that, that, that he doesn't know because he, he wasn't taught differently or whatever. Peter had walked with Jesus all this time. So Peter knows better. But in Galatians chapter 2, starting in verse 11, Paul is talking. So what happened? Peter was all good with the Gentiles. He was eating with the Gentiles. He can now eat pork and bacon and all this stuff because he can eat anything that's, you know, that was like previously unclean that he couldn't eat before. Now he can eat all of that. Peter is good with the Gentiles. No problem. Nothing's wrong. But then Peter's boys come rolling through. His posse, you know, his homeboys, his road dogs. They come rolling through and they say, what are you doing, Peter? Why are you eating with them? You know we don't do that. Why are you eating with them? And Peter, feeling the pressure of everybody else from his race, all the other Jews, you know, that they knew better too, Peter felt the pressure and Peter retreated from the Gentiles. Like, can't mess with y'all no more. You know, I got to hang with my folks. I got to look good in the eyes of my folks. This is Peter. This is who the church was built on. Okay? The text says, if you, you go on to read, it says that because of Peter's hypocrisy, it even led Barnabas astray. Now, let me give you a l quick little history on Barnabas. Barnabas was born in Cyprus, which is a Roman colony, okay? Barnabas grew up with Gentiles. He knows Gentiles. He knew they were good. He grew up with them. He ate with them. He played with them. He was raised with them. But Peter, who was the leader, Barnabas looked at Peter and said, man, if Peter is going to retreat, I got to be loyal to my folks. I got to roll out with Peter. That's what he did. So the text says that by Peter's actions, you know, Peter was weak in that moment. And because of his re re uh, hypocrisy and his refusal to just check his boys and call his boys out and say, no. This is wrong. This is not what we do. You know, it's an inclusive society. You know, these people are good. As long as they worship God and carry the flag of Christ, we're good. Peter didn't do that. He retreated. And guess what? Paul called him on it. Now, remember, Peter was one that sent Paul out. Paul called him on it. Why? Because it was the right thing to do. Peter, why were you good with the Gentiles you could eat with them. You could commune with them. Everything was good. But the minute your, your posse comes through, 
Now, to be loyal to your posse, you're more loyal to them than you are to the gospel of Christ. Paul called them on it. And I'm going to submit to you today, because I've been there before, and quite honestly, I've been there in recent times, like in the last several weeks, more than I care to be, when I feel like I'm the Lone Ranger, when I feel like, you know, all my brothers, all my sisters are, you know, just angry and want revenge and, you know, because of the racial, you know, uh, uh, a discomfort that's going on right now. And when I stand for the flag of Christ, it's not a comfortable place to be. But guess what? Jesus already told us about that, right? They didn't accept him. You know, everything he said that was standing on the word of God, that was doing what God wanted him to do, he was out there by himself. That's why he got crucified. He warned us about this. He said, if they reject me, they're going to reject you. So that's no excuse not to carry the flag of Christ. And I say that knowing how hard it is and how difficult it is. I mean, think about it. Peter fell prey to the pressure. Why would we be any different? It has to be an intentional decision. It has to be a willful decision. It has to be a sacrificial decision to carry the flag of Christ. Even when everybody else in your race, everybody else in your family, everybody else in your posse, people that you love, people that you respect, you know, are, are running the other way and wanting you to turn a blind eye to what's going on and wanting you to stand with your race. I've been asked, well, which side are you on recently? Oh, so you're on their side. No, I'm on the side of Jesus. That's whose side I'm on. And, and, and I don't mean to offend anybody, but if I'm on the side of Jesus, regardless of who is telling me what and what your right is and what your wrong is, I'm going to stand on the side of Jesus and I'm going to pray for you to join me on that side of Jesus. Do we want racial relations to be better? Do we want to be part of the problem or do we want to be part of the solution? I want to be part of the solution. And to do that, it may not be comfortable. You may have to take a stand and you may even, you know, some people may have to, you know, are, are, are going to run away. That doesn't diminish your love for them, how much you care for them, how you treat them. But God is calling us to do the right thing. A favorite saying of mine is right is right and wrong is wrong. I don't care if it's a Jew who did it, if it's a Gentile who did it, if it's a black guy who did it, if it's a white guy who did it. I'm going to judge the act according to the scripture and what God says is right is right in my eye and what God says is wrong is wrong in my eye. So God, give us the courage to do that. Let me summarize here because I'm not going to get through the rest of the chapter. My time's almost up. Verse 8 said the disciples went somewhere else. They went to the town to buy food so Jesus could have an encounter with this woman. That was strategic. We just saw where Peter's boys kind of influenced him to do the wrong thing. I think what Jesus is telling us is that, you know what? I'm going to send these disciples to town to buy food because I need to deal with this lady. I need to reach out to her, and I don't need any distractions from possibly guys that might try to push me in the racist direction, 
you know, that she's a Samaritan. You don't need to be talking with her. The text says that when the disciples came back, I got to read this because this, this, is, this is heavy. It says when the disciples came back that they were kind of mumbling among themselves, uh, why is Jesus talking to this Samaritan woman? But none of them were brave enough to raise a question, okay? As, you, as this whole thing wraps up, all a bunch of Samaritans became believers. And Jesus used those disciples who had been gone to town to get food. When they came back, Jesus said, now is the time to harvest. Look, at the, look over the hill and all the Samaritans are coming. And it's just one big happy family because Jesus had set the way. Jesus had set the way. So I'll wrap up by saying this. If Peter who the church was built on can feel the pressure and lead his flock astray from his actions. Any one of us could be Peter. We have to make a willful decision. Somebody put it this way. They said a fog in the pulpit, a mist in the, in the pulpit is a fog in the pew. What does that mean? I believe that this whole thing of racial inequity and racism and all of that, I think this could have been solved a long time ago. And I'm going to say if the church, if the pulpits were right, and if the pulpits had been speaking against this from day one, I think it may have been different. And I think that's why the civil rights movement was different, because the church got out in front of it, and all of a sudden a movement came, and we saw change. I think there needs to be more of that. I'll ask you guys this. It's the last thing I'm going to say. Do you want to drink from a cup? From a cup of someone else who is different, raised differently, looked differently, you know, has different ideologies? Are you willing to drink from a cup? I can stand before you today and say that I am. Because my conviction is that whatever it takes to bring humanity to the feet of Jesus, I'm willing to do. And I'm not perfect. I ask that you pray for me in that area. I'll pray for you. And I'm going to quote a Michael Jackson song of all things right now before I pray. <laughs> I'm starting with the man in the mirror. I'm asking him to change his ways, that no message could be any clearer. If you want to make the world a better place, take a look at yourself and make a change. Let's stand and pray.